This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. An issue that doesn't seem to want to go away. As uh, you heard here on CHML News, the general manager of community and emergency services with the city of Hamilton and six other city employees used a city vehicle and conducted out-of-country city business at the Women's March in Washington, D.C. a couple of months, weeks ago, rather. This was done without proper authorization from the city manager. Uh, the city manager says it's, uh, to the, use the phrase that he used at the council meeting, water under the bridge now, but uh, an awful lot of people in the community don't seem to want to let this go. Is it uh, something that needs to be studied further? Should there be disciplinary action? John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. John, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. Thank you. Let's uh, let's get into this, I guess, on a philosophical level, and maybe uh, you know, bear down a little bit on, on exactly what did happen here. What's what's your read on what you know of this so far? Well, uh, you know, I I think it it's like so many of these discussions you have. Uh, the event itself is frankly no big deal. I mean, uh, clearly there was an error in judgment in in using a a company vehicle for a, a venture like that, but. As as is so often the case with these things, uh, a minor infraction, if you will, uh, turns into something major because of the symbolism that's uh, invoked. And, you know, if, if you study public relations, you'll find that anything with high symbolism uh, tends to get people riled up. And I think, I think Andrew Dreschel hit it on the head with his Monday column in his last sentence when he talked about, you know, it's the symbolism of, of sort of a sense of entitlement that gets people uh, angry. What, what I'm hearing, uh, talking to people at City Hall, is that there's, there's been quite a, a spontaneous uh, public uh, response to this thing, and a number of counselors are getting uh, all sorts of emails. And uh, one of the counselors I talked to said, you know, it's not the usual suspects. You know, there's always that 10 or 15 that, whose names keep popping up on things that these are new people and they're signing their names and uh what are they saying well they're just saying it's outrageous uh and and it, a lot of it's tied into uh you know uh, certainly it, it would appear that some of the criticisms coming from people who occupy the the more right side of the spectrum but it's you know discussion about you know sort of the elites uh just don't get it and you know it's uh the arrogance and all that kind of stuff and and I think the fact that they that they did take part in a political exercise uh, has riled some people because uh, you know I don't I mean I, I think it's always dangerous to compare Canada with the U.S. politically but there's no question that there's probably a great unheard from group even here in Hamilton that feel that you know uh, they, their their views are not being represented whether it's on. Uh, budgeting, taxation, or, or just general social policy. The Because uh, I'm getting a lot of feedback on this, too. I mean, I'm still getting emails about this, and, and people seem quite upset. And, and I, I agree with what your counselors are telling you as well, John, because this is these are not the same people that usually call and say, you know, fire the bombs or do this or do that. Uh, they're concerned. And, and i got to tell you, one of the things they bring up in their arguments, and this seems to be almost a constant theme through this, is, hey, you guys already set the precedent a few years ago and you fired a bunch of guys from Public Works because you thought they were abusing uh, their privileges. They got, boom, summarily, now most of them are back now after a long, drawn-out judicial process. But they're just saying, well, if that's what you do to the frontline workers, how come management get a different scenario? And uh, I, I don't have an answer for that. 
No, and, and uh, again, uh, quoting Mr. Dreschel in his column today, uh, one, one of his uh, readers uh, put that to him. Uh, you know, what if... Uh, you know, some some people from one of the crews took a crew cab down there, and they all put on red Trump hats and celebrated. I, I think the outrage clearly would be uh, would be something that we'd all understand, and there probably would have been more serious action. I mean, I I, I still view the original event as a as a, a more of a judgment error than anything else, but uh, nonetheless, it it seems to have hit a, a sore spot with. Uh, members of the public and and I think the timing is is probably an issue in that we're in the middle of budget debates and the the numbers don't look very good right now in terms of uh, keeping a lid on taxes uh you know so all of those issues that that are not really germane nonetheless get sort of factored in and baked into all this and well there's a lot of angst here right now for a variety of reasons well, and then you've got the, the you know the LRT issue, which is, has become a very divisive issue in the community, and seems to d- almost have the community divided along right and left lines, and so it's all kind of factored in to, uh, uh, you know, clearly there's there's an undercurrent of discontent in the community that's been here for a long time, and all it takes is kind of a triggering incident to set the match to it. So what's what's the city to do in a situation like this? If again, as I said, right at the beginning of this conversation, you know, Chris Murray, the city manager, seems to think that this has been dealt with. He had a conversation and with uh, the manager. I don't know the other people involved. Joanne Pryor, I do know. I, I obviously, when I was on city council, I got to know her quite well. I got a lot of time for her. I think she's a very dedicated and very very talented uh, city servant, and 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 does an incredible job with that department. Uh, so it's not character that's involved in here, but like you say, there's been a mistake made right now, and I think people are simply saying, well, wait a second here, you, you've set a precedent already, what, you mean no disciplinary action, or if there is, we don't know anything about this. It's, it's almost as if some people are asking for their pound of flesh here. Yeah, it's a pretty awkward spot for, for Mr. Murray. I mean, he can't be seen to do nothing. On the other hand, uh, fairness would dictate that you can't overreact just to satisfy the, the the mob if you will so it's it's a it's a pretty delicate balancing act but um, the the response from the public frankly has surprised me even in, in the sense that it seems to have brought out a new cohort of complainers uh, and and uh, respondents and and I find that rather interesting I mean we're, we're pretty used to the you know, sort of the pattern of the dialogue that goes on in this community, whether you're following comments to uh, news stories or, uh, you know, just the calls you get or just, you know, the people that we've come to know in the community that have strong points of view. But there's a bunch of new people seemingly weighing in on this, which would certainly, I think, be an area where there needs to be a little bit of concern. One of the other things that that I'm hearing from an awful lot of people that are concerned about this and calling and 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 rant, ranting about this in in their own way is uh, they say we're well, not sure we're getting all the facts here. Uh, you know that they they went down there and they supposedly visited a number of community hubs. Uh, now I don't know what the policy is now. I know there was a time, John, when uh, people went down on on reports when they did you know trips, conferences, whatever the case might be. Staff people, especially, had to bring back a written report and said, "Here's what I did." In other words, this is why I went. Here's what I learned. I don't know if that's still the policy. I don't know if anything like that is forthcoming. 
Uh, they they seem to be indicating that they were sort kind of sort of there on city business, but they took holiday time to do this, and they didn't expense anything like this. And there, in many people's minds, seems to be a bit of a disconnect here. Like there's a missing piece to this puzzle. Well, that, that's kind of the irony of all this. Uh, if it had been a legitimate business trip, and certainly a senior manager uh, at at the manager level, uh, Ms. Priel's level, uh, would would have the authority to book herself on a flight to Washington or go to a conference. Uh, you know, as long as it was included in the departmental budget, there'd be no issue whatsoever about her having to get permission to uh, to attend a conference if she saw fit. The fact that they didn't expense it uh, almost undermines the notion that there was a legitimate purpose in the sense that, okay, if it was a legitimate meeting and we didn't just throw these these visits in as a kind of a, uh, a bit of a screen for the main purpose of the trip, then they would have been fully within their rights to claim expenses. So <laughs> the, the non-claiming of expenses somewhat undermines... Uh, some of the uh, justification for the trip. So where's this going to go? Frankly, uh, I don't think it's going to go to any great extreme. I, I think it's it certainly has run much longer than I thought it was going to run. I, I heard about this, uh, I guess, about a week or eight or nine days ago. And, you know, I, I thought, well, that's, you know, probably a blunder. But, you know, I didn't for instance, I, I published an edition of the Bay Observer, and I didn't make reference to it, uh, not not because I was you know trying to conceal anything. I just didn't wasn't sure that the news value was all that great. Um, but uh, here here we are into another week, and we're and it's Wednesday, and uh, it's still uh, going on. Are there t- is there a double standard here, in your opinion? I, you know what I, I mean. I always think that uh, you know, in in any organization, not just government. Obviously, senior managers have more flexibility. They, they, they can do things, and uh, people are less inclined to question them. Um, certainly, if I was the individual in the, I don't know how the vehicles are allocated in Hamilton, uh, but presumably there's a place where the vehicles are kept, and presumably you have to go in and get a set of keys. And, and a, a lower-level staff is probably the person that's handing out the keys. Um, so, you know, uh, if, even though there's not a direct report, you're, you're probably not going to challenge a, a senior department head when they ask for a vehicle. So, you know, there's, a, there's deference, I guess, uh, to seniority, absolutely. Here's the thing, though, and, and there's, a, there's a subtext to what's going on here, John, that I'm, I'm maybe I'm reading between the lines, but I'm kind of getting the sense, and as I'm, as this morning as I was going over some of the, the notes that I got from the public and some of the tweets about this, uh, one right here on, on Twitter from uh, Casey says, so typical, the workers get disciplined, but management gets defended. Uh, you know, and, and that's a very common theme. And, and the subtext that I'm referring to here seems to be, here we go again with this, this us versus them between management types and, and frontline workers. And we, we certainly saw that during the public works uh, debacle uh, where people got fired and some of them were disciplined for this. Uh, and now almost it looks like it's, well, it's, uh, you know, turnabout is fair play here now. And now they're looking at this, and this may well be, I mean, for all I know, some of the people I'm hearing from may well be some of those frontline workers that are feeling like, okay, now it's our, it's our turn now to, to start laying on people that we think are, are, are abusing their, their privileges and their rights. 
Um, it sounds it sounds as if there's a much bigger problem that's going on here. That, that the city's going to they they keep talking about this disparity between between workers and management in the city, but every now and then it just seems to to swell up, and I think it's doing it again now. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, folks I've talked to at City Hall feel that a number of uh, the the emails that they're getting are probably coming from staff. So it it does underline you know that ongoing split that you get between management and staff, uh, especially in the unionized situation where, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, there's other story in the news today about trying to crack down on overtime. And when you see how out of control that is, uh, overtime is usually engendered by sick days. And uh, when you got that kind of absenteeism, uh, it's not a happy shop. You know, that's the bottom line. Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that's a story that just, uh, we, we CHML News, we were just start, starting on today. But again, and because and, this has been going on for at least 15, 20 years now, we've had a higher absentee rate than many other communities do. And and when you talk to some of the frontline workers, I mean, not officially, but I mean, off the record, a lot of them will tell you, yeah, you know what, I just got so ticked off with so-and-so, or I just got so tired of doing the job. I just taken some days off. I got 26 days or whatever the number is, and I'm going to take them all. Uh, and, and of course, that costs the city money. But that goes once again to this idea about an unhappy workforce. It does indeed. And, uh, you know, and, and that's a complicated problem. I mean, let's face it, the uh, city of Hamilton has, you know, the second or third largest workforce of any organization in the city. You've, you've got, you know, 7,000 plus employees uh, scattered all over the place, and uh, you know, there's, there's it, it's difficult to be a manager in that kind of environment. Uh, uh, you know, where the union is very strong, uh, and and it's not like uh, working for Ford Motor Company where where layoffs happen all the time. There's no layoffs, so you know, it's a it's a pretty secure environment, and. Uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, notwithstanding the security and notwithstanding the pensions and all of that, there seems to be an unusual degree of unhappiness that uh, manifests itself in sick days and absenteeism. And, you know, it's a, it's a real issue uh, that, you know, I, I, it's a very perplexing problem. And to your point at the beginning of our conversation, you know, maybe this is not such a big deal. But but it gave these people that were already discontented an opportunity to kind of rise up and, and, and take a shot at management once again. And and for those counselors that are concerned about the feedback they're getting from the citizens right now, uh, that's a problem they should be addressing. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's, the, it's almost like you know, when you see a volcano about to erupt, you know that there's a lot more going on underneath than you're actually seeing on the surface. And, and I'm sure management's aware of that. And uh, we hear about it every now and then, and I think it's happening again now. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, this issue has been catnip for people that are, uh, that have other reasons to be unhappy. And, you know, I think that's probably, if we're going to get any good out of this, is to try to peel that back a little bit and see, you know, wh- these, uh, these uh, divisions that are obviously being revealed here by the, frankly, the more symbolism than anything else of this event, uh, more symbolism certainly than substance. But uh, it, it does show that there's uh, uh, a level of discontent that's just bubbling under the surface, not only with uh, the workforce, 
but I think with a large number of taxpayers. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council meets uh, later today, 5.30 this afternoon down at City Hall. Uh, And this is an official council meeting where they will actually... uh, go over all the reports, you know, the committee reports as they do at every council meeting and uh, and pass them and, and ratify them, etc. One of them, of course, is the General Issues Committee from a week or so ago that dealt with the ward boundary review uh, and did not deal with it very well, in my opinion. Uh, but it will probably, we're told, be ratified by council, or maybe not, because there's been a great deal of pushback about this over the last little while. And uh, we'll be watching uh, with great interest to see just how ha- council handles this. Uh, you know, if you have watched the movies, uh, the, the movies, because <laughs> it, uh, it is fiction sometimes. Uh, but when you watch some of these, uh, like on cable fourteen, if you watch the the council meetings, and you just say item one, item two, carried, carried, and they don't really talk much about them. Uh, and I'm interested to see if they're going to do that again and just kind of shove this one under the carpet or if there's going to be a wholesome debate about this. Joining us to talk about this is Graham Crawford, of course, engaged resident of Hamilton, uh, the Graham Crawford Show on podcast, of course. And uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Thanks, thanks for coming in. It's good to see you again. Well, thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. You've been outspoken about this issue for quite some time. Uh, we've had a number of debates about this and decisions, and uh, we, we've brought the consultants on, of course, to, to talk about this. Uh, the people from Watson and Associates, uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Williams, of course, who was the chair of that committee, a very extensive process. Uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes on how council may be dealing with this today, tell me about the process and how you feel about how this has been handled. Well, in a word, uh, terribly. And the reason I say that is because what, when I listen to counselors push back after they took out their crayons and kind of gerrymandered their own version of the, of the recommendation for... They don't re- like it when we use that word, but that's exactly what it that's is. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, if there was ever a time to look something up in the dictionary and see pictures of your counselors, this is the one. <laughs> Gerrymandering is what it, what it is. Um, but... I say terrible because it's being spun as if this is about service levels. So Councillor Whitehead, for example, says, I don't get many complaints, so therefore it's okay. This is about democracy, not about service levels. This is the city pages right here. I got this off the city's website uh, because I wanted wanted to, to talk about exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and it says at the end of the, the, the Q&A here, so just bear with me for a second. Yeah. Why award boundary review? Well, the city of Hamilton's population has gone up by more than 30,000 people since the last review in 2001. This is to ensure effective representation for all citizens. Representation by population. That's what, a not co- what, what a concept. Well, <laughs> but that's not what they did. That is ex- they did exactly the opposite. So one of the ways I like to think about this is let's say you lived on a court and there were five houses on your court, and there was a problem. And you got in touch with your counselor, and four of your na- you and, four, and three of your neighbors, so four of you vote, said, this is how we feel about it, and you had one neighbor who didn't feel the same way. Your counselor says, let's take a vote. Four of you vote against it, one votes for it, and the counselor says, it's a tie. It's, it's, it's madness, but that's exactly what's happening. You take Rob Pasuda's ward with the number of people in it, because it's, it's around 16,000 and change, and Ward 7, Councillor Skelly's ward, uh, and it's, it's uh, over 60,000. So it's like a four-to-one ratio. So my little silly little court analogy, court as in a housing court, is actually fairly accurate. Makes no sense. But 
And again, the, 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 we use strong words, and, and that seems to, to get them riled up. And great, I see some passion with this. But this is hijacking the process. And I, I heard some of the comments uh, last week, Graham, from the meeting from some of the councillors saying, well, you know, this really shouldn't be in front of us. Well, it, you know, that's how you hired the consultant. A little late to make that point. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and by the way, they had pretty much got shoved into that too. I mean, they weren't even going to do that, except that there was a petition that was circulated a few years ago that forced them to get into that realm where they hired the consultant. So we spent, we're told, about three hundred thousand dollars right. so far, and uh, and and like I say, we had we had Dr. Williams on the program a couple of different times as he began the process, and certainly after as he made his final presentation to city council. Uh, and gave what I thought were two viable options for them to consider here. So for those that haven't been following this, uh, basically what City Council said is, no, nah, we don't like either one of them. We'll do it ourselves. So for those councillors who said, well, we really shouldn't be doing this, then they should be bloody well voting against it this afternoon then, because this is clearly, this is clearly self-serving, what they've been doing. Well, it's completely self-serving. And when you hear people like Tom Jackson, Ward 6 Councillor Tom Jackson, say, he knows people in his ward who will be very upset uh, if they're no longer part of Ward 6. And I say, really, Tom? There may be people in your ward who would be upset they couldn't vote for Tom anymore. But they're no, they don't, nobody cares about what the number of their ward is. They may care about their rep- representative. So let's just call it what it is, gerrymandering. And I get the same feeling. And, and I mean, you know, for the last number of years, of course, we've lived in Ancaster, and I love it. It's a great community. And I understand that, you know, because I was there, Graham, as, as you and I discussed many times, during the amalgamation discussions and the debate. And, right. and one of the main reasons against amalgamation was that, well, you know, these places are going to lose their identity. Well, it didn't happen, of course. But, and, and they still want to protect that. But Ancaster can still be Ancaster. Stony Creek can still be Stony Creek. Dundas can be Stony But just draw the boundary lines so that there can be proper representation. Stony Creek is still Stony Creek, but those are arbitrary lines that said this is going to be one ward, this is going to be another ward. And I don't think anybody really cares what number the ward is. They just want to make sure they get a proper representation on city council. And right now they're not getting that. Well, I would say if your community identity is threatened by invisible lines on streets and assign numbers, then you've got a really weak community. And I don't think we have any weak communities in this city. You're absolutely right, Bill. Ancaster's still going to be Ancaster, Waterdown, et cetera. That's not the issue. And any councillor who puts that up as the problem, when you actually look at the recommendations, no community is threatened. We're not dividing communities here. We're just making equal representation uh, the norm. The other element to this, though, and, and again, it's going to come from some of the people in some of the rural areas that are going to say, we can't actually, because one of the rep- one of the, the, the recommendations here is, of course, to add an extra councillor. Uh, and, and they'll suggest, well, that's going to tip the balance of power, and that means the city is going to ride roughshod over the, the rural areas. Uh, now, I don't see any evidence that's ever happened. Uh, I, I know there have been a couple of attempts to do some policy changes that people didn't really like. But when are we going to get rid of this us versus them attitude? Well, I mean, it's an awfully good question, and I, I have no idea how long this is going to take for us to actually get past. We've been at this for 16 years, and I would, I would say, honestly, I don't think we're any further ahead today than we were 16 years ago. 
uh, we've got too many, uh, you know, prisoners who seem to hostages who have been carried along, and they still feel that way. They talk that way. But but you know, it's important that, to remember though that there are old city of Hamilton councillors who are vocally against this as well. So it's not just people who live in the rural communities who say, well, wait a minute. Uh, we don't want urban votes being cast every time and we lose. We, 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 Terry Whitehead is against this too. But Terry Whitehead, oddly enough, is a councillor who now says he's not hearing any complaints about service levels. He's the very same guy who asked for extra staff because he was getting too many calls because his uh, he's got too many people in his ward. So you, see, you see, can't this, have it both ways. No, and this is, Graham, is exactly what the way they, they have dealt with this in the past. Whenever there's been uh, a hue and cry from some citizens, and you're right, it's not a front-burner issue for a lot of people, uh, but but it's about representation. And the city themselves, when they established their goals here, said this was about fair representation. But, but but this is what they've done in the past. They've simply said, no, we don't need to change anything. Just increase our office budgets, right. which they have done. Uh, and the, there's another, you know, one of the great hypocrisies about what's going on here. Uh, they they year after year, and they're doing it right now. As you and I are sitting here down at City Hall, they're saying 1.8 percent is the maximum anybody any one of these departments can come in is 1.8 percent. Look at the numbers as to how much they've increased their office budgets over the last number of years. Uh, I believe it's a close to 28%. They hiring When I worked at City Council, and that was uh, about ten, well, more than 10 years ago since I've left now, we had one admin assistant. Yep. That's it. One person. That And that's all there was to it. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I started there, it was one, one admin assistant for two counselors. Yeah. And then after amalgamation, I said, okay, fine, you, you each get an admin assistant. Now they've all got their own little office staffs. They, uh, do, they do. Some of them still only have one because they choose to do that. So, for example, Chad Collins, as I understand, has one. Mm-hmm. Sam Marula does. Now, they still get the same budget allocation. They just spend it differently. Yeah. Not on staff, but they still get the same number. When I say the same number, I, I mean the same number as the majority of, of ward councillors. But there are some councillors, like Terry Whitehead, who gets a bigger budget. And so... Interestingly enough, though, the consultants aren't proposing spend more money. They're just saying rejig these imaginary lines so that, you know, as close as we can, which is what the legislation requires, is one vote kind of equals one vote. And we're so far away from that now. I don't know why people aren't up in arms about this. To draw something that's going to be fair and equitable, and and, and again, your, your terminology about arbitrary lines I think is is, is spot on. Uh, you look at when I represented Ward 7 years ago, or just go to any ward, but I mean, I can, I can talk about that. The boundary between Ward 7 and Ward 8 is Upper James. Why? It's right. an arbitrary number. And you're trying to tell me that if you live on the east side of the street, life is that much different from the west side of the street? Well, apparently, Councillor Whitehead thinks so, because he talked about one side of uh, the power right of, hydro right away is different than the other side. And then you've got to say, well, what exactly are you saying? And what he and thankfully, because Terry keeps talking, he talked about income levels, blue collar versus white collar. It's like you're now we're talking about income divide. I thought this was about democracy, that people got a vote, no matter how much money you make or what title you have or how big your house is, um, you get a vote. That's all we're talking about. And people need to understand that, you know, Matt Jelly's Equal Wards Now campaign 
It's only about democracy. There's no hidden agenda other than that. In fact, it's, it's not hidden. It's right out there. And and there will be changes. And 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 but as we know this as a matter of fact from the last federal election. I mean, the, the federal government went through this process a number of years ago. And, and and by the way, some of the local representatives on the federal level tried to gerrymander it too and said, no, 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 no. But it was an independent body that did this, and they said, here's the way it is, and they changed the boundaries. And for instance, in Ancaster, where I live now, we had to vote for a new member of parliament because there was right. a new ward created, a new boundary created. David Sweet decided to run in the other one. Philomena Tassi gets elected. That's life. That's the way things go. All right. So the, I'm sure there were some people in Ancaster that wish they could have voted for David Sweet again. But that's a decision that Mr. Sweet made to run in a different riding, and, and that's the way things happen. Uh, there may well be people on the East Mountain that love Tom Jackson. I know there are. There are. Because he gets elected all the time. Yes. Uh, and a and, good guy. and some of those people might be. This is going to be your counselor now. But. <laughs> It's all about equity, and it's all about fairness. Now, the other side of this coin, of course, of people that are saying, well, why would counselors be so adamant about this, is because those that get reelected time and time again know where their support is in those wards. And right. they don't want to lose that neighborhood over there exactly because they right. vote for me all the time. Yep. And they may even be more precise than that. They may know votes on streets, votes in apartment buildings, votes in seniors' residences, which is fine. That's the smart thing to do. But when you use that knowledge and those stats to resist uh, be a more fuller democracy, I say, you know, you're out of touch. This is all self-serving, and it shouldn't be self-serving. It should be community-serving. So what's going to happen today? I mean, I, I'm guessing they're going to ratify this. Oh, yeah. I think so, too, Bill. I think your, well, so I mean, your instincts are excellent always <laughs> on this because you were there, uh, and you know these people. But I think, they're, I think they are going to vote in favor of it. Uh, they won't all vote in favor of it, but almost all of them will. And uh, The only one I've actually heard who's spoken out against this on a philosophical level was Matthew Green. Matthew Green, and he's been consistent, and I think his, uh, his comments uh, are, you know, he's not attacking his colleagues, but he's standing up for democracy, which I think is kind of a good thing. Uh, because if you strip away all the personal stuff uh, and you just look at the essence of this, it makes perfect sense. Um, and so what's going to happen, I think, is, uh, you know, uh, a dirty three-letter word. Uh, for counselors, OMB. That's what's going to happen. All right. This isn't going away. Let's walk through that. Uh, because I, when Matt was on the program after last week's meeting, uh, said that it was a sure thing that this was probably going to go to the Ontario Municipal Board. And of course, that'll be driven by this petition, etc. Right. Now, from my understanding, is the process is, is the OMB simply takes over the process at that stage. That's correct. Now, here's the other element to this, too. If we want to talk about being thrifty, which is what all counselors love to be able to characterize themselves as, uh, if this goes to the OMB, uh, the city will have to defend its position. That's going to cost money. Well, lawyers are cheap, as we know. Uh, not. So, no, exactly right. We are going to have to have senior staff attending OMB hearings defending a position that is, in my view, indefensible. I would be very surprised if the OMB came down on the side of counsel in this. It just doesn't make any sense. This isn't really I mean, it's political in a sense because people are playing with ward boundaries. But it's really, again, if you look at the essence in a pure sense of democracy, there's one answer: is is rebalance the wards. That makes sense. It seems fair. This is about fairness. This is not about anybody else's political future. Right. To, I mean, to maintain the status quo is basically because there are some counselors around that table right now that are, are worried about their political future. They want to win the next election. I get that. 
But that shouldn't be the priority. Their first job should be to exercise a a process here that's going to create fairness around here. They they were supposed to have done this a a couple of years after amalgamation. And they kept kicking it down the road, kicking it down the road. It was citizens like yourself and Matt and so many others that pushed this process to get to this point. Um, I I can't see that you're going to let it go at this stage and simply say, oh, well, we tried. We can't let it go. I mean, this is a fundamental right of people who cast votes. And it's also a fundamental right for those who don't cast votes by choice. They decide not to cast a vote. But the point is, if they choose to vote, they get a vote. And all we're saying is, let's make it a little more equal so that we don't have votes that are cast at council that carry four times the weight of another vote. That doesn't make sense. Uh, at the municipal level. And this, by the way, is not a difficult rejig. Councillors push back on this communities of interest line that they keep using. And number one, you've got to ask yourself, well, what's behind that? What are they talking about when they say a community of interest? If, if they were drawing a line down the middle uh, of Dundas or Waterdown, which they're not, you might be able to say, well, you know, really, should you should you vote one side of the street be different than vote on the other side of the street because it's the same street? But at, when you put lines down, they have to go through the middle of something. Uh, but so communities of interest suggest I know my ward and I know what people care about, and therefore you need to draw the lines accordingly. That is gerrymandering. We uh, just got the report, out, and we're going to talk about this later on the program, from uh, the census numbers uh, from, yes. from last year. Hamilton's one of the fastest-growing cities in the country uh, by population growth over the last number of years. Uh, and we're still stuck uh, in neutral here when it comes to proper representation. I mean, we've done it federally. Uh, we've done it provincially because the province obviously follows the federal boundaries and simply rejigs theirs accordingly. That's why they don't have to repeat the process, which, by the way, is a, a frugal way to do that. The city has a responsibility. This is not just a bunch of citizens saying, hey, it'd be kind of neat if we did this. There is a responsibility by every municipality to reevaluate and rejig these things according to population shifts. And, and they're, they, they're frankly delinquent in their responsibility, having not done this yet. Well, and I would say beware the phrase fastest growing. There are certain councillors that use that. And obviously, if there's 100 new homes built in your ward, and only five built in another one. Yours is the fastest growing. But they use this as to, to sort of suggest that we're going to catch up to, you know, Ward 7, 62,000 people and it, from a base of 17,000 or 26,000. Well, good luck. Bill, you and I won't be alive when, when that they, they match population. So, yes, technically it's true, fastest growing. But this isn't about leaps and bounds because that's not what's happening. Yes, our numbers are up, but look at the real numbers. They're higher. But but we're not adding 30,000 homes in Bimbrook every year. And if you think we are, take a look at the numbers. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Governments are looking for money. Yeah, what else is new? But, I mean, especially these days because, let's face it, they're cash-starred. We know what's going on here in the province of Ontario right now with uh, the Wynn government and uh, their attempts to sell par- portions rather, of uh, Hydro One. 
and, and reaping a cash benefit. We talked about that with Steve Paikin, of course, on the program yesterday. Well, the federal government's in a similar situation. Uh, they want to spend, they want to put money into infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going into debt to do this, but they're looking for ways to generate more revenue. And they don't really want to raise taxes because, you know, who likes raising taxes, right? Well, uh, John Iverson writes in the National Post today that uh, an airport sell-off could offer the Liberals a financial gain without political pain. John joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, John. How are you doing today? Morning, Bill. How are you? Excellent. Uh, interesting twist to this whole thing. And uh, I, this one kind of came out of the blue for me. I didn't even know they were looking at this. Has is, is this been on uh, people's minds for a while up in Ottawa? Well, the, uh, I mean, I think, the, we'll put it this way, the valuation that came in yesterday from C.D. Howe valued the top the biggest eight airports are between seven and sixteen billion dollars i don't think that people had been thinking in those magnitude of dollars um bill morneau had commissioned a report from uh, the finance minister commissioned a report from credit suisse the investment bank so we don't know what that says but i would imagine it's it, it's in a similar ballpark so um yeah that the, the the idea has been on people's minds that the, the, the thing is, here is that these airports are not on Ottawa's balance sheets. Although the, the government actually owns them, they weren't on the balance sheet, so nobody could say, well, if you sell them off, you're going to get their value to X. So I think that the, the, the magnitude of cash that could come in is, is a startling to people. But um, this was reviewed a year or so ago by uh, David Emerson. There was a panel appointed to review the entire Canadian Transportation Act led by David Emerson, the former Liberal and Conservative cabinet minister. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had concluded that uh, there was a lack of discipline in the management of these of the airports, the existing airports, because they're, they're essentially, the, the, the land is owned by the government. Uh, the local airport authorities pay rent to the government, but they're not for profit and they're not, uh, there, is no, there are no shareholders. And they're a monopoly, so there's no real uh, urge to to make a lot of money and to be creative and innovative. So, I think Emerson was critical of that. The government, because of that, has cover to uh, to sell them off, and I think they will do. Yeah, the the one I guess most people could relate to around here is obviously Pearson Airport in Toronto, uh, right. and and that's managed as you know by the the Greater Toronto Airport Authority. But it's it's actually federal property. The Lester B Pearson Airport is actually uh, owned by them. Uh, and I'm surprised when I, I, when I saw your piece this morning, John, that uh, that that these aren't on their balance sheets. I mean, these are huge assets. I mean, there's a lot of land that's available here. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that you couldn't start selling off for uh, for development, for example. But it but it. Uh, you know, they value Pearson up to $6 billion, C.D. Howe's valuation. Uh, we don't know what Credit Suisse says, but uh, but let's let's assume it's somewhere in the same ballpark. Um, yeah, I mean, this could be a cash cow. Now, obviously, if you sell it off, you can't get the rent that comes in every year from, let's say, from the Greater Toronto Airport Authority. Mm-hmm. Um, that accounts for the top air, eight airports account for about $305 million a year. Now, you would get some uh, corporate tax back, and the estimate from C.D. Howe was that the feds would get $60 million and the, uh, the province, which doesn't get anything at the moment, would get $50 million. So you, you, you somewhat cover your cost there, but, or not cover your cost, but you make some money back. Uh, so the decision always when you're, you're considering asset sales is, you, you know, you're going to get a one-time influx of cash, but, uh, but your ongoing revenue is probably going to be hit, and you've got to defend that to taxpayers. 
Um, I think in this case they may be able to do that, depending on what they use the money for. But if you know, if the government turn, says, "Well, we're bringing in 16 billion, we're going to spend that on infrastructure, which will generate uh, economic growth and, and more uh, tax for the federal government," then you could make the case that this is a, a win-win for for um, for the government and for for Canadian taxpayers. I mean, the the one thing here that the lack of political pain for the government arises from the fact that I don't think many Canadians uh, think they're getting a great deal from airports as it is. You know, for years and years they've paid airport improvement taxes. And while we have uh, world-class infrastructure, I mean, when there are surveys of these things, apparently Canada's uh, ranked very highly for the quality of its infrastructure. It's ranked very low for the, for the, for the cost, I mean, i.e. that the costs are high. You know, in world terms... Canada is one of the only places, it is the only place, it's unique in having these not-for-profit, uh, non-shareholder companies running the business. And as a result, in my opinion, the costs are higher than they might be if it was a, a private company. What do they do in other parts of the world, John? I mean, we were over in Scotland. I think you and I talked about that a few months ago. We actually flew into Glasgow. We ended up in Edinburgh. Uh, fabulous airport. Are, are they privately owned or are they government yeah, owned? Yeah, both, both, both are privately owned. And, uh, um, you know, at one point when they deregulated in Britain, they were all owned by one company, and that included Heathrow. And I think since then, they've, they've, uh, the Monopolies Commission has forced them to, uh, to split it up. I think mainly because, as I pointed out earlier, that you know it's very hard to lose money running an airport. I mean, they're, they are. Uh, I was speaking to somebody who'd been 45 years in the business, and he was saying, you know, these these things are monopolies. You don't need to be that smart or innovative to make money at running an airport. And, and as evidenced by the one that I saw in Glasgow, I mean, there was huge investment back there. They were just do, redoing one of the terminals when we were there last uh, last May. So, so obviously, uh, under private ownership, I mean, they are making capital investments into these sorts of things. Well, I think as well, the um, you know, British airports were at the forefront of privatization uh, move, but because they, they, you know, then you've got to deliver some money to your shareholders, so you've got to be innovative. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to bring in world-class retail. I mean, if you go to Heathrow or one of these big airports, they were they were miles ahead of uh, Canadian airports in creating this kind of uh, shopping leisure experience in the airports. And you know, and to, to to do that, you've got to make the thing comfortable and and cost effective. So, um, I think that this is the wave of the future. There's one other factor, slightly complicated, but um, these. All these airports are on leases, and they were on 60-year leases, and I think they've, most of them have extended that by 20 years, which means that they're probably not due until somewhere around 2070 that the leases are up. But all these airports borrow money over 30 or 40 years, and as they get towards the, the end of their lease, there gets to be a crunch. So if you're borrowing over a much shorter space of time, then just like you do with a mortgage, you're probably going to be paying more which means you're probably not going to be investing as much. So the, the, the Emerson report that I talked about um, pointed out the fact that there's probably going to be less and less investment as all these airports come towards their, the end of their lease. Well, and if they're in a not-for-profit situation, I mean, what's the, what's the incentive for them to invest? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, when you look at Pearson's... Why make life uncomfortable for yourself? Yeah, exactly. Uh, as opposed to, as you mentioned, someplace like Heathrow. I mean, you know, instead of having a, a little donut shop or a coffee shop. I mean, I mean, we flew out of Heathrow last time. There's a Harrods in, in, in at Heathrow Airport. I mean, you know, you don't have to go back downtown again. They got a little mini Harrods there. Uh, yeah, all sorts yeah. of great commercial enterprises there. Well, I mean, I, I fly in and out of Ottawa Airport. And I love Ottawa Airport. Yeah. But if you're flying internationally, uh, they've they've got a tiny Tim Hortons 
and and a bar, and and you you may be able to buy a sandwich or something. It's not a rich retail environment. I think you could probably say that about Pearson, and uh, and I'm sure you could say it about Hamilton. So you know, I think uh, this is the way of the future. It's um, there are other ways the government can raise money, and I, I've been writing about that this week. I mm-hmm. think they really wanted to um, they really wanted to uh, put a tax on health and dental plans. Um, just from a fairness point of view, they thought that why should people without a health and dental plan um, subsidise those who've got them? But I think the backlash was building as soon as it the word was leaked. So uh, they're looking elsewhere at some of these tax expenditures, cutting the, the meal and entertainment allowance that uh, that uh, uh, basically funds a lot of corporate boxes at sports events might be one. Uh, there's another thing called the age credit. But all these things come with a huge political cost. And the government's got to really think hard about uh, whether it's going to do it or not. I think on the airports, the, the, the political backlash would be much less than they might get elsewhere. Well, especially and it, as, and it would raise a lot more money. Yeah, especially as you wrote in, in, in your piece today. I mean, the numbers are, are favorable. I mean, you, you, you contrast that with what Kathleen Wynne's trying to do here with Hydro One in Ontario. And she's got an auditor's report that basically says, you know what, you guys are going to make a lot more money if you hang on to all this stuff as opposed to, to selling part of that off. That the, the dividends would be much greater. But right. they want they want the quick hit. They need the cash right now, which is why you know they're apparently going to move forward on this. But that's as, as your numbers indicate in your piece today, it's just the opposite in this federal plan here. Uh, yeah, there's dividends, there's money to be made if they hang on to these assets, but not nearly as much as they'd make if they sold them. Yeah, and I think that um, if you're the Liberal government and you're thinking, well, you know, it's not probably not going to help me this year because you've got to get a sales process in, in motion. And you may not want to do it all in one go anyway. You may say, well, we'll just we'll, uh, sell off 50% or, or however they want to structure it. But, you know, you've got a three or four year window here going forward where they can raise a lot of money. So they're moving into the next election, gradually narrowing their deficits if they can start to, to bring in some of this cash. So I think from a I mean, the guy I talked to in the industry was saying, from a political point of view, it's a no-brainer. But not surprisingly, there will be pushback, as you wrote about, and from the the airports themselves. Yes, I mean, I think there's already a, a website. Uh, Calgary, Ottawa, and Vancouver have banded together to point out that uh, you know the, their their claim is that, that well, these are local boards, which is true. Um, you know, all these. L- Airport authorities have a local component that may be lost if you've got a corporate headquarters somewhere overseas or, or even even in Canada. I mean, can, Canadian pension funds are big investors in uh, in, in airports because they, they provide a steady, long-term, pretty safe return. So, so Canada's pension funds are at the forefront of this. So it's not necessarily the case that we'll be flogging off the airports to foreigners. It may be that our pension funds are. Uh, are big, big investors in this. But clearly it would not be a local board of worthies who would sit and discuss what might be good for, for the region. So there is that. On the cost front, they claim that they would be more costly to travellers because you've, if you've got a private company, you've got to pay money back to shareholders. Um, David Emerson's report, looking at the sell-off of airports, said the international evidence is on the contrary, that actually the, uh, the costs come down for travellers. So I, I'm not so sure I buy that contention. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very similar. The arguments that, that you outlined in, in the piece here, increased travel costs, the removal of local voices, undermining Canada's economic competitiveness. They, these are the same philosophical arguments against privatization that you hear all the time. Right, and, and uh, you know, I mean, Canada has already privatized. There are three kind of legs to the 
the airline industry stool, if you like, and one was uh, the flagship airline, Air Canada. The second was the Civil Navigation Service, NAVCAN. And the third is the is the airport. Well, we've privatised the first two, and I think a lot of people bitch about Air Canada, but if you travel around the world with other airlines, as I did recently with United Airlines, you, you actually come back to Air Canada and think, well, they ain't so bad after all. Yeah. And um, NAVCAN is a world leader in civil navigation. Um, so I think the experience is that this is actually not a bad process. So what are the next steps? I mean, clearly, as you say, the, 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 this is not going to be included in Morno's budget. Uh, in, 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 obviously, this well, is... It, might, this is it might, well, might well be. He can actually, but he can start throwing some numbers around then? Well, he's got the Credit Suisse report on his desk. Uh, so, I, I mean, if you want the thing to start flowing, the cash to start flowing through sales, then you've got to kick off the process. And, uh, um, I mean, I asked the question yesterday, is, is this on the front burner? Because they previously described it as being on the back burner and did not get a satisfactory response to that. But... Uh, uh, and the, the, the word from Morno's office was that no decision has been made. But he's got the report, and uh, he's already got, obviously, got Emerson's very, very thorough report. And I suspect they, they will uh, move in it before long, and it may well be that it's in the budget. Is this a game changer? I mean, if, if they're able to accrue something in the neighborhood of $16 billion out of the sale, and that's, and that's not going to happen overnight, uh, but does that Im- immediately get funded into a, maybe a new program that gets announced during the budget? Well, uh, vis-a-vis well, infrastructure, or something like that. I think I think it would probably be part of their uh, infrastructure bank project. Um, I think certainly they would have to make the case that the money is being well spent, and it's not just uh, paying down uh, deficits that are, that are being used for social spending. I think that uh, there might be mass outcry if the money was badly spent. So um, well, we pretty much so demand I, that from governments now, don't we? In other words, accountability. Don't just tell me it's going into general revenue. Show me what you're going to spend it on. Yeah, I think that, that on this one they would have to make the case that, they're, uh, that the, uh, the sell-off money is being used for infrastructure to improve Canada's competitiveness, which obviously blunts the argument being made by the airports that Canada's competitiveness will be impeded by this. So, yeah, I, I suspect it would be infrastructure-related. Um, but again, I mean, we, we have got no vision of that at the moment. We, I guess we'll find out in the budget. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.